A reading from the Gospel Luke, chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who represents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the young son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough of bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, 
But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. morning. I'm Adam. I am director of 5th through 12th grade and the Emerging Leaders Program here at Lakeland. And today, this morning, we'll be finishing uh, a very short series, just a two-parter, on the the story of the prodigal son that we just read. Father, I pray this morning um, that you would speak to us. You would give us a challenging word, Lord, but a word filled with hope, a hope of you and of your son Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. In 2010, I was living in China uh, in the midst of spending a year there as a missionary. Now, if I'm being honest, I was feeling pretty good about myself and my decision to move overseas for the sake of God's kingdom. But I put myself on a weighing scale of what being a good, obedient Christian looks like. We all do this, right? I got to say, I was holding my own. Let's put it this way. If you get like three good Christian points for coming to church every Sunday, and you get five points for telling someone you know about Jesus, I felt like overseas missions were worth 20, 25 points minimum. Unless you're doing your missions work in like Hawaii or the Virgin Islands or something. That's like barely eight points. But there I was, having been a Christian for more than 10 years, feeling like it was all finally coming together for me, spiritually in so many ways. And then I decided to read this book, The Prodigal God by Timothy Keller. And everything I thought I knew about Christianity about God, about my relationship with him, got pulled right out from under me. Have you ever seen someone try to do the little trick where they pull a tablecloth really quickly right off of a table filled with plates and glasses and silverware and everything? Sometimes that goes really poorly, right? Leaving broken glass and dishes and china all over the floor. Thankfully, this is not what happened to me. My faith was left intact. It was a really successful tablecloth pull. In fact, I felt like my faith in God and my understanding of Christianity were actually much stronger than they had been before I read the book. And this morning, I hope to bring you along a similar journey. As we begin to pick apart the text that we just read, it's important at the outset to recognize who exactly Jesus was talking to when he was telling the story. His character of the younger brother was supposed to represent those people who were a little on the edge, whose behavior could be considered hmm, a bit crude, or 
who were openly and unabashedly sinful. Now, these kinds of people were definitely around to hear Jesus' teaching. The text tells us right off the bat that tax collectors and sinners were gathering to listen to him. It is safe to assume, based on the context, that Jesus had these types of people around him at almost all times. Now, last week, we discussed the ways that we might be like the younger brother in Jesus' parable. We all have a desire for self-discovery and self-fulfillment that at times leads us to attempt to find our own happiness and meaning in the world. Now, we discussed how this was at the very heart of what the younger brother was attempting to do when he asked for his inheritance early so he could go out and have a fun and exciting time with his friends. Now, these urges, these desires, they're stronger in some of us than they are in others. Thus, we might say that some of us are younger brother-like. Now, realize this has nothing to do with birth order. Now, you might actually be a younger sibling in your family, but when we use this term this morning, we're referring to displaying the characteristics of the younger son in the parable especially the sense of yearning to make our own way in life. However, for others of us, we might resonate more closely with the older brother in Jesus' story. Again, while many of us might indeed be firstborns in our family, the use of this term will refer to displaying the characteristics of the elder brother in the parable. Now, this leads us to a second group of people who are listening to Jesus teach. The Pharisees, the ultimate bad guys of the New Testament, right? The Cobra Kai, the Legion of Doom, the dark side of the Gospels. This is the way they're usually portrayed. But who exactly were the Pharisees? They were the Jewish pastors, ministers, and priests. They were the teachers and keepers of God's law a group of men who had pledged their entire lives to attempting to help people see and understand the importance of clean and righteous living. Let us get one thing straight. The Pharisees were more devoutly religious than I will ever be and than you will ever be. They had the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Torah, completely memorized. The Pharisees were not merely the murderous enemies of Jesus, but also pursuers with the most fervent hearts imaginable of the righteousness of God. The Pharisees are the first group to speak here in Luke 15, and they say with scorn and disdain on their tongues, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Jesus then turns to the Pharisees and tells them a set of stories. The first story is pretty simple and straightforward. We have a shepherd who loses a sheep. The sheep is very valuable to the shepherd, so the shepherd goes out looking for the sheep. Leaving the other 99 sheep momentarily in the process, he goes out, finds it, brings it home, and rejoices with friends and neighbors. The second story also is short and sweet. A woman loses one of her ten silver coins. Now, these coins would have been drachma. They were 
worth about a day's wage for a laborer, something around $100 of today's value, perhaps a little less. Now, this coin is very valuable to the woman also, so she very reasonably searches the entire house until she finds it. When she does find it, she calls up friends and neighbors and says, I found it. Let's throw a party. Probably not much in either of these two stories that would have ruffled many feathers. But then we get to Jesus' third story. We talked about the first half of this parable last Sunday, focusing on the younger brother, his brash attitude, his need for self-reliance and self-fulfillment, his failure to find the happiness and meaning that he was looking for, and finally his return home back into the loving accepting, forgiving arms of his father. We discussed how this would have been a beautiful, hopeful message of God's love for those tax collectors and sinners in the crowd. What a message of hope for those among them and those among us who can relate to the younger brother. But the three parables in Luke 15 were not aimed at the tax collectors and sinners. The parable was not primarily directed at the younger brothers in the crowd. It was targeted at the Pharisees. And after hearing this parable, the Pharisees were hot. They were angry beyond belief. Why? Let's dig in a little deeper. When the elder brother hears the commotion of what sounds like partying in the story, he goes to ask the servants what is happening and learns that his younger brother has returned from his sabbatical of wild living. He is hot. He is angry beyond belief. He refuses to go into the feast the father is hosting. And let us stop here to take note. This would have been seen as a very disrespectful act, as disrespectful even as the younger brother asking for his inheritance right then and there. This was a very public display of non-confidence in the father's actions and would have been viewed as a challenge to the father's standing within the community. Public feasts were very important events. And for any invited guest, let alone the host's eldest son, to simply not show would have been seen as an act of ultimate disregard. In a lot of ways, our culture now finds it much easier to hand out grace and forgiveness for younger brother types. I have watched this play out over many years in the mainstream media and over social media. It is now the elder brother types who have begun to be pushed aside and looked down upon. But I mean, who can blame people, right? They are judgmental, legalistic, all or nothing, black and white types, who maintain an air of moral superiority about themselves. Many are labeled bigots. Some are called narrow-minded or worse. Only now, what I have observed slowly over time is that it has become easy, and not just easy, but accepted in society to be bigoted about bigots to be narrow-minded about narrow-minded people, to judge those who are judgmental, 
and to take an air of moral superiority over those who are too bothered about morals. But thankfully, this is not the reaction of the Father in the story, and it is not the reaction of our Father in heaven. The Father in the story, though shamed and disrespected by his elder son, leaves the party, leaves the feast he is hosting. This would have meant leaving his seat of honor in front of the entire community. He goes outside, looks his son in the face, and begs him to come back inside, begs him to return to the feast, to return to relationship with him. Look here, the elder son blurts out, not exactly an endearing way to speak to one's father. Owen, don't get any ideas. He's actually not here this service. He was in first service, though, and he heard me. So, I have served you here many years. I never disobeyed your commandments, and yet you never threw me a party. You never gave me a feast to celebrate and show me off to the entire community. I want to do two things with this scene. First, I want to be really sympathetic to this elder brother. And then, I want to bring a golden hammer of beatdown on top of everything he stands for. You ready? Let's do it. First, let's see things from his perspective. In many ways, the elder brother has every right to be extremely angry. When the younger brother left with his share of the inheritance, which for a father of two sons would have been one-third of the value of the estate, the elder son would have been left with the remaining two-thirds of the value of the land. Thus, when the father tells him, everything I have is now yours, this now rings true in a very literal sort of way. However, when the father reinstates the younger brother as his son, symbolized by wrapping his own robe around him and letting him wear the signet ring of authority, the younger brother has been brought back into the estate with full privileges. Meaning that upon the father's death, however many years down the road, the younger brother, if we include the amount that he's already blown, will end up receiving not just the one-third that he was owed by law. Now, this is crazy. I did the math several times. I checked it three or four times to make sure that I was getting this right. He will end up with five-ninths of the estate more than the elder brother's four-ninths, even though the elder brother was owed two-thirds by law. Now, for those of you who have elder brother tendencies, I'm going to stop for a second and let that sink in. I assure you that I do. (laughs) It's not difficult to see the elder brother's feelings, the anger, the outrage, But now, for that golden hammer. When we look at the language the older son uses to describe his relationship with his father, a lot of things become clear. First, he uses the term serve to discuss his relationship with his father. 
I have served you all these years. This calls to mind a master-servant relationship, not that of a loving father and son. I never disobeyed your commandments, he continues. Again, the picture this paints for us is not an image, a beautiful image of a relationship. When I think about the relationship that I want to have someday with my son and with my daughter who is on the way, what do I picture? Perfect obedience to all my commandments? Some of you out there are nodding your heads emphatically. Yes, actually, that is what we want. Or at least it'd be a good start. But there has to be something more, right? And this leads us to the real climax of the story. The part that was so shocking for me to realize those many years ago that it completely changed my understanding of Christianity and of God and of my relationship with him. With this parable, Jesus was completely redefining sinfulness. It's easy to look at the story and say, well, yeah, the younger brother definitely sinned by going out and living a crazy life. Booze, women, partying, you name it. But the older son, he was doing all the right things. He said it himself. He obeyed everything the father told him to do. And yet, at different parts of this story, both brothers find themselves equally lost, equally disengaged and disconnected from the Father. You see, sin is not just about our moral failures. Sin is a lack of relationship with God for any reason. And thus, the sin of the younger brother in the story and the sin of the elder brother in the story are the same. Both brothers desired the father, not for the sake of loving and being loved by him, but for what they could get from him. The younger brother says it quite plainly, right, when he asks for his inheritance. I'd rather it were like you were already dead, I'd rather have your things, your money, than to stay here and have a relationship with you. And the older brother, he says it equally as plainly, though I did not see it for so many years when I had read this story. I stayed here with you. I obeyed you. I worked for you. I did everything in my power for you. Not because I wanted to be near you, not because I wanted to grow closer to you. Not because I wanted to love you and to be loved by you as your son. But because I thought I was going to get something in return. I thought I was going to get a fattened calf or a young goat. I thought I was going to be the guest of honor at your feast. I thought, at the very least, I was getting two-thirds of your estate, and now I'm not even getting that. This is not shocking to you yet. We need to dig a little deeper. So what then, according to Jesus himself, does rebellion against God look like? 
Well, some rebel with cussing, some with sexual promiscuity, some with a complete disavowal of any and all laws and rules. But we knew that, right? Some rebel with politeness, some with obedience, some with religion. Did we realize that? Some rebel with drugs, sure, but some rebel with Sunday school. You can rebel against God and be completely alienated from him by either breaking all of his rules or by following them all precisely. You see, obedience can so easily become the goal, the objective, the end for which we strive, that we forget all about having a real, authentic relationship with the one whom we are obeying. We can so easily follow rules for the sake of setting up a system of oughts and shoulds. We've prayed every night for three years. We ought to get one answered every once in a while. We go to church every Sunday, or at least most Sundays. We ought to be getting the kind of life that we want to live. We've avoided all the major sins, whatever we think those might be, so we should be in pretty good shape salvation-wise, right? But when we fall into this line of thinking, we have absolutely, positively removed our need for a Savior. We have removed any need to actually pray for the purpose of seeing and knowing God better. We have removed our most fundamental purpose for even existing on this earth to love and to be loved by our Creator. This is not shocking enough yet. Let's dig a little deeper. So we've now made quite astonishing claim that the sinfulness of the two sons in the story is the same. But what happens at the end of Jesus' story? Where do we find the two sons? Well, the younger son is living it up, right? He's in the party with the father and the entire community. What about the older son? He finds himself outside the feast, refusing to go in. He's completely cut off from the community, cut off from the father, cut off from joy and love and peace. At the end of Jesus' story, This is crazy. The wild, wayward sinner ends up saved and redeemed. And the submissive, obedient do-gooder ends up not. In Jesus' paradigm, it is more dangerous spiritually to be an older brother than a younger It is more dangerous spiritually to be a Pharisee than a prostitute. It is more dangerous spiritually to be a regular church-going, Bible-toting saint than it is an out-of-control, law-breaking delinquent. If this isn't making your skin absolutely crawl, you're missing something. How in the world could that possibly be true? You should be asking yourself. 
Because when we make it about our morality and our ability to follow the rules, we have missed the utter point of the entire universe. And those of us who find it easier to be moral and to follow rules, well, we tend to get really proud of ourselves and we tend to lean on it very heavily. I spent years reading Jesus' Beatitudes in the Gospels. And this is kind of crazy since that was our call to worship. I actually had no idea that this would tie in. You know, like, blessed be the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom in heaven. And I wondered, why are the poor in spirit the ones who will be blessed someday? Like, being poor in spirit is going to earn them some sort of special consideration or something. And then one day, as I was reading it again, it hit me. They're not going to receive blessings because they are poor in spirit. They are blessed right now because the state of being poor in spirit makes us desire, makes us want with every part of our being the saving, redeeming love of God through Christ. Those who have flown the coop, who are living a crazy lifestyle, who are breaking every one of God's laws they possibly can, are constantly just millimeters away from hitting rock bottom. And at rock bottom, people tend to look up and see the things that they've been missing out on all of those years. Love, mercy, forgiveness, hope, and peace in Jesus Christ. Well, those who are comfortable, rich, living the good life, thinking they're following every one of God's laws they possibly can, well, they tend not to need much. And they tend not to look up. Because if we're being honest, the view all around them is pretty amazing. Many really moral people are lost, not in spite of their goodness, but because of it. So what do we do about all this? At this point, you're probably asking yourself, what in the world is he actually saying? Does he mean it's better not to try to do good, to pray, to read our Bibles? Should I be following and pursuing the life of the younger brother in the story instead? I'm absolutely not saying those things. Pursuing good and righteous living is amazing. And it can be a way for God to show that he is truly changing our hearts from the inside out. But here's the real test of whether our morality is real and God-inspired or whether it's merely elder brother-like? Is it drawing you into the feast? Is it causing you to love and to forgive and to rejoice in the presence of the Father, no matter the cost to your own life? Or is it causing you to stand outside the door to the party feeling angry, bitter, and irritated. The point of this story is not to identify, to point at 
the sin of the elder brother or being like a younger brother as superior. But rather, it's showing us a third way. The real way to joy and fulfillment. A true path to God. Because, and this is so important, whether we are younger sibling-like or we are elder sibling-like, the real goal is a closeness to the Father. So what is the third way? How do we find this nearness to God? Well, to begin answering that fantastic and most important of questions, let's once again notice that this parable is actually three parables. Whenever Jesus tells a set of stories, it's always helpful to ask, what is the same about these stories and what is different? Well, the thing that is the same is fairly clear here, right? It's about finding lost things, a sheep, a coin, and a son. But what's different? Did you catch this? In the third story, the father actually does not go out looking for the younger son when he runs away. Whereas in the first two stories, we had people going out, actively searching for, and eventually finding the lost things. Now culturally, it might be easy for us to miss the insinuation here, but you'd better believe that Jesus' original hearers would have caught on to this very quickly. If we're really rooting for reconciliation, if we really want to see a reunion between father and son when we hear this story, the entire time that the younger brother is somewhere out there, lost and cut off and confused, there should be something within us yelling, why doesn't somebody go out there and find that kid? Somebody needs to get out there, find him, and bring him back home. And our instincts would be right. It would have been someone's responsibility to do that. Within the family structure of the time, there would have been someone whose job was to go out and find the younger brother. It would have been the older brother. Now, you might immediately recognize this as a further slap in the face to the Pharisees who were listening to the story. And you'd probably be right. Jesus is saying to them, not only have you no right to be upset that I am eating with, welcoming, and reaching out to lost people and sinners in the world, but it was your job to be doing this. God gave you the responsibility to go out and shepherd people back into his love and grace and mercy. And instead, you have been doling out nothing but shame and guilt and judgment. But there's something really hopeful about this part of the story as well. Because while in the story, the younger brother has no search and rescue mission, functionally, he has no older brother out there searching for him. We do. 
And Jesus is saying, I am that. I am the true older brother. I am the search and rescue mission. I have left my place at the table. I have left the feast of heaven to come down to earth after all of those lost and lonely youngers, but also for you older brothers and sisters too. I was stripped naked so that you might wear the robe of greatest honor. I gave up my ring of power so that you might be given full authority as the true daughters and sons of the Most High King. Now, we've already unlocked so many ways that this parable is absolutely brilliant storytelling on Jesus' part. But there's one more. The ending. It's not quite M. Night Shyamalan crazy, but it's a Christopher Nolan cliffhanger. The parable ends with a question of sorts. Verse 31. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead, but is now alive. He was lost, but now is found. The father is asking, Won't you come celebrate too? Won't you leave behind all of the judgment, all of the self-righteousness, all of the moral superiority? All of those things are exhausting anyway. And just come be with me. Let me love you like the crazy doting father that I am. Come back into the feast It's for you too. Will the elder brother return to the party? We don't know. Will the Pharisees? We don't know. Will we? If Jesus has anything to say about it, we will. And thankfully for us, Jesus has everything to say about it. This morning, we're going to get an opportunity to respond to Jesus' invitation, to his request for us to come back to the party, to join in the feast. Communion has always been viewed by the church as a feast a celebration of what Christ has done and continues to do in our lives, a celebration of our love for God and our love for each other. If you would like to take Jesus up on his offer and join him in the feast this morning, you will come forward, break off a piece of bread, dip it in the chalice, and eat it, taking Christ into yourself. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread, gave thanks, and broke it, saying, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you stand with me? And let us pray together as Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Therefore, we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Alleluia. The gifts of God for the people of God. Each day, may Jesus Christ be as real to us as this food and this drink. You may come forward. And so, God, you have fed us with spiritual food. You have fed us with your word by your servant Adam out of the Gospel of Luke. You've brought us together with the one loaf and the one cup. And you're about to send us back out into the world to be light and salt. May we do everything we can. May we do everything we can, Lord, to be your children and to call you Father. And not to be estranged from you. By either disobedience or moralism. And we all said, Amen. May we continue to hear the voice of God, our Father, beckoning us welcoming us into his great feast. And may our hearts desire to know him and to love him more all the time, not for the sake of getting something from him, but for the sake of loving and knowing him more. Go in the hope and joy of the story that is worth celebrating. In the peace of Christ, amen.